0: Welcome to the DLA Piper Financial Services Podcast. This series discusses the big issues in financial services, providing market and legal insight into the latest trends and challenges in the sector.
1: Welcome
2: to this special podcast to discuss Islamic finance and ESG. My name is Sahel Ali. I'm a partner in the litigation team at DLA Piper. I'm delighted to be joined by a couple of very esteemed guests. I'm joined by Paul McVearty, Partner and Global Head of Islamic Finance at DLA Piper, and also by Blake Good, CEO of the RFI Foundation, which focuses on promoting responsible finance, specifically in the Islamic finance sector. Welcome to you both. I think as we kick off this topic, in recent times, ESG has become a bit of a buzzword. And as it's risen, high up on the corporate agenda. A lot of people in the Islamic finance sector I've seen have have been talking up the synergies between ESG on the one hand and Islamic finance. Essentially, the idea that Islamic finance is a financial system that has more than just financial profit as its main driver. So you, you often hear proponents of Islamic finance Point to the fact that the essence of Islamic finance is essentially based on creating a system that's beneficial to society and humanity by you know, avoiding potentially harmful and exploitative practices and behaviors. So, you know, you often hear that there is a prohibition on, on interest and the purpose is to prevent exploitation. There's a prohibition in certain types of investments. So, you can't invest in alcohol or drugs or pornography. These are, you know, sectors or businesses which are deemed unethical or harmful to society. And people will say that this is very much aligned already to the the ethical and the sustainable decision-making principles of ESG. Now, as a disputes lawyer, I think the greatest risk for financial institutions and and funds and other organisations in the coming years is the risk arising out of greenwashing, i.e. essentially organisations claiming to be ESG compliant, you know, whether that's by making statements or representations about the impact that they have or will have, and about sustainability, which may not necessarily be supported by by the data. And Blake, I'd like to bring you in here at this point. Islamic finance often has built in guardrails to deal with, you know, different types of risks. And typically, that might be done through, you know, the role of Sharia board scholars who would you know, sign off on a transaction to say that it's Sharia compliant, or requiring a, a risk reward model, or, you know, as we've seen, limiting the types of investments that can be made. The question that I'd like to ask you is, do, do you think greenwashing presents a problem in the Islamic finance space? And how do you think the Islamic finance sector could deal with
1: that risk? Well, I think Islamic finance does face the same risks of greenwashing because it's all about making claims and how well and rigorously they're vetted. So in some areas, Islamic finance, in addition to what you mentioned before, also has the alignment on the, the G side of having some of that vetting built in through the Sharia review process. So there is some governance in there that prevents some types of greenwashing specifically around Sharia compliance, but it doesn't necessarily extend to claims about environmental and social objectives and impacts. And that's been one of the areas where it still is early in the process for Islamic financial institutions to consider ESG and the, the risks of greenwashing because it's become a topic of interest in line with what's happening you know, in a wider context only in the last few years. So we haven't seen, I think in the case of responsible finance in general, we're only seeing the very tip of the iceberg in terms of what greenwashing risks there are yeah
2: no agreed and I think Blake you've previously discussed the role potentially of sort of an incentive based model that we could introduce how do you think that model could in practice work here in the Islamic finance sector to drive better responsible financing
1: so it came out of the the growth and popularity of sustainability linked structures so setting KPIs and financial incentives linked to those KPIs. And that has become a really fast-growing part of responsible finance for the reason that doesn't have the strict limitation on what entities can use it the way that use of proceeds bonds do, where if you don't have a green project or a social project, then you can't raise funding through those types of instruments. But with the sustainability-linked instruments, it's open to a much broader range of issuers. And that particularly matters within markets where Islamic finance is most present because those conditions on labeled bonds, green and social, or sustainability, Sukuk, are significantly limiting. But the move towards sustainability-linked instruments also comes with a cost in terms of that risk around greenwashing because the incentives are, have to be set in a way that it actually incentivizes the right type of behavior. And currently in that space, the penalties are not in line with what is needed to make it an incentive. And there's also counter incentives provided to investors for the same reason. So in a sustainability linked instrument, you set a KPI and if the issuer misses the KPI, then there's a step up coupon at some point in the the life of the Uh, the bond or the scoop. Um, And that's designed to create a cost for not meeting the KPI. The issue with that is that some issuers have found ways to get around that through having callable instruments. So they don't make the target. They can call it early. And also there's a huge demand for the instruments. So often they get a pricing benefit at issuance that's larger than the potential penalty. There was a paper by Colbo and, Lembion earlier this year that found that on average it was $3.5 million gain, a free lunch basically, for issuers to use uh, sustainability-linked instruments that they got in premium, in excess of what they would pay if they didn't make the KPI. And for investors, there's not really the incentive to monitor because they get a benefit, they get a financial benefit if there's a missed KPI and there's no, no real cost to them There may be at some point if uh, investors are focusing on what percentage of KPIs are met in their portfolios, but that's not a strong enough incentive at this point to promote robust engagement and monitoring of portfolios by investors or by most investors. So it creates the incentive to issue these types of sustainability-linked instruments, but not necessarily monitor, which if we're talking about greenwashing, that presents a huge risk down the road that nobody's paying attention to uh, at the moment. And within Islamic finance, there's similar incentive challenges that have been confronted in the past, specifically around how do you provide the right incentive for customers of Islamic finance when they may also, particularly in the corporate side, have both conventional and Islamic financing. So if they run into a period of financial difficulty, if there's no cruel of the profit in the Islamic space, and there is accrual of interest on their conventional borrowings, there's the incentive to default first on the Islamic facilities because they they are fixed. They have a fixed profit rate. And so the workaround for that was to allow for late penalty fees to be charged to provide that incentive that is equivalent to the conventional space, but with the restriction that you don't want to encourage unsustainable borrowing. Um, that's one of the yep. principles that guides Islamic finance. And so the restriction is that the the lender or the financer in the Islamic finance transaction can charge these late penalty fees, but cannot take them as revenue. They have to donate them. So it mitigates some of the incentive to provide more risky debt if they are not going to get paid additionally, if there's a late payment or default
2: yeah so it's it's this idea of having a carrot a stick and then also the Mm -hmm. governance around it so effectively the monitoring piece in addition to just having the carrot element to it paul if i can bring you in uh, obviously as a as a transactional lawyer you are front and center in terms of drafting the documents and the deals we've heard the idea of the incentive-based model from blake potentially to mitigate some of the the greenwashing risks going forward in your experience as a transactional lawyer, you know the idea of late charges currently you know, exists within the uh, within the industry. How does that currently work in Islamic finance transactions? And do you think, in terms of what Blake is suggesting, this is something that could work to sort of drive better sustainability within the industry more generally? And and you know one idea is where do the late charges? You know who's responsible? effectively for deploying and dispersing those late charges? And how could those be used in a much more responsible manner?
0: Thanks, There's I think it's fair to say a number of very good questions there. I guess just to take a, a step back based on my transactional career. I mean, when I first started out in the finance industry, it was within the project finance space almost 20 odd years ago. And during that period where I was first getting to grips with not just the structure of financing transactions, but also more generally with, you know, the way in which projects and in particular project finance transactions were being structured. They introduced, of course, the equator principles. And obviously, you know, over the years, we've seen an evolution within the finance industry of how these social, environmental and sustainability issues are tackled and how governance is put in place to ensure that people do the right thing people are responsible financiers so um, my career journey has has obviously been through a number of these areas previously and it's interesting and particularly timely, timely actually, with COP27 going on in Egypt as we speak, that we're looking at this in the context of Islamic finance and how, you know, Islamic finance can respond to the challenge here. How, you know, it can look back over its development and, frankly speaking, its position in terms of flexibility and innovation, and how it can really. You know, garner a lot of support going forwards within this this very important space, and that brings me on to the practical aspects of how S E S G is managed through not just transaction structures, but in particular the documentation and the impacts. And that comes, of course, onto the point that you've just made, Sahil, around you know penalties, charges, and how they might apply. Well, taking a, a small step back on that first, of course you split SESG in terms of its impact on a financing transaction into a number of different areas. I mean, first of all, we've just touched upon use of proceeds and, and ensuring that they're deployed in ways which are beneficial to the principles around SESG and ensuring that ultimately the financing is being used for the right kind of purposes. You also, of course, have the implementation of covenant packages and CPs, et cetera, which are designed to ensure that issuers and borrowers are doing the right thing, that they are committed to certain standards against, in particular, timelines. And that's where KPIs and the timelines for achieving those KPIs, as Blake alluded to, are very important. And then we have, of course... You know, the monitoring of those and what the impact is when things don't quite go as planned. First of all, there can, of course, be an economic impact, and that can be managed through how the pricing, how the economics of a deal work, whether it's through margin adjustments or whether it's through the imposition of penalties, fees, or other charges which are designed to incentivize. Good performance but you also have of course the reputational issues associated with not complying with your obligations and then finally of course in certain parts of the world you know the regulatory implications that Sahil you were touching upon earlier now all of those manifest themselves in different ways in the documents and focusing in on the Incentivization through late payment charges or late charges more generally, and how currently they work through Islamic finance documents. Well, the concept of late payments or penalties, which are levied on non performing borrowers, is nothing new in the context of an Islamic finance transaction. We've had late payment compensation or late payment charges embedded within Islamic finance documents where a borrower delays on making a payment and they're charged an incremental amount of profit or fee, which is ultimately made available to the financier to cover any actual costs which are associated with that delay but it only covers actual costs. And there's a premise that after those costs have been deducted, those amounts should be donated to charity or charitable purposes on behalf of the borrower. And I think it's that second part of what we're seeing here in terms of what a late charge for non-performance or not meeting a timeline could and should do here. It shouldn't go towards the financier or reimburse the financier for any costs. It should actually be used for a, a broader... Purpose here in terms of meeting SESG goals. And I think that's what we're really talking about here in terms of altering the mindset. It really is more about the mindset in terms of how these kind of issues are handled within the Islamic finance industry and how it goes about differentiating itself from the conventional finance industry.
2: Now, thanks very much, Paul. I fully agree. And as a disputes lawyer, This is one of the things that I constantly try and encourage my clients that um, having this at the forefront of your mind, building this and integrating this into your mindset as an organization is the way to mitigate some of these risks. We're running out of time here, but I just wanted to bring you back in, Blake, just to sort of comment on Paul's thoughts there in terms of we've heard from him in practice how this works in day-to-day transactions. And you've obviously touched upon the idea of the greeniums as well. Any additional thoughts that you wanted to add in terms of what you envisage the industry, the direction of travel that you envisage the industry taking?
1: Yeah, I think the the point that he made about using the payments not as an incentive for benefit to investors, but to mitigate the environmental and social impact of missing the KPIs is really important. And I think that's something because that structure is already familiar within the context of Islamic finance, where Islamic finance can kind of jump ahead in terms of showing how the solution works. Because if you think about a sustainability-linked instrument that has that incentive issue cured, or at least substantially mitigated, then the only thing that you compare one instrument to another in terms of its outcome, it's going to get from an investor perspective, you're going to get the same return, whether the KPI is made or missed. The only thing that you have left to differentiate one instrument from another is whether or not the KPIs were met. And so it gives them more incentive to focus on ensuring portfolios are meeting their KPIs because there's no benefit to the investor for them being missed. There's some use of the incentive payment to mitigate some of the consequence of, of missing that target. But at the end of the day, the, the focus is on, as it always is in Islamic finance, is on the real economy impact. So if there's more KPIs being made, that has a better impact on the real economy from an environmental and social perspective and outcomes focus, which is, at the end of the day, that's what the financial structures are designed to do, not just for their own purposes, but for that broader impact. Thank you, Blake.
2: And I agree I think with Islamic finance has always prided itself on the fact that it has been the pioneer in many respects you know, when, it, when we talk about ESG, I know proponents talk about the fact that ESG has already always been inbuilt into Islamic finance principles, and it's not something that they need to reinvent the wheel for now. It's been in place for over 1400 years. And I think the industry should have the confidence to sort of lead from the front when it comes to some of the initiatives you're talking about and the KPIs and the use of some of these incentives. To have the confidence to lead the way and build the path i'm going to sort of wrap up there paul i just wanted to ask you i'll come in for the final time and say any final concluding remarks before i
0: thank you both completely agree with with all of that and it really is about lasting impact and what the islamic finance industry can do and how it can differentiate itself from what the conventional finance industry is doing within this space
2: thank you very much Blake, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Fascinating discussion. Lots more that we could talk about. Thank you very much for listening to this Financial Services podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you have any questions in relation to anything that we've discussed, please reach out to any one of the speakers. Thanks very
0: much. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. If you'd like to hear more of the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast series, subscribe now through your usual podcast app.